it's the challenge of decarbonization. You got a utility here that continues to burn coal. How do we get ourselves away <laughs> from coal in an accelerated time frame, but also do that affordably? And the challenge of that was really appealing to me. But- This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. This is episode 046, number 46 of the Flux Capacitor. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face but using Zoom. This is the eighth podcast in a series shining a light on climate change, net zero greenhouse gas commitments, and what the implications may be of those net zero commitments. Over this podcast series, I'm trying to unpack these GHG emissions reduction targets and net zero commitments to understand what they mean for the governments that make these commitments, the potential impacts on the companies that produce and deliver electricity, how it will change energy use, and what it may mean for customers. Over the series, the conversation has been evolving, and it continues to evolve, particularly with respect to the specific carbon reduction targets. While the overall net zero 2050 economy-wide target remains, the 2030 target has moved from a 30% reduction to a 36% reduction to a 40-45% to reduction. In the recent Canadian federal election, the platform of the re-elected Liberal Party included a commitment to a 100% net zero emitting electricity system by 2035. For this eighth podcast in the series, I'm joined by Peter Gregg, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Nova Scotia Power. Part of the Amera Group of Companies, Nova Scotia Power is a vertically integrated company, which is to say that it generates, transmits, and distributes electricity to customers in Nova Scotia. This is Peter's second visit to the podcast. He was a guest in episode number two in 2019, but has since moved into his current role with Nova Scotia Power. We talk about the challenges of the GHG reduction targets and Nova Scotia Power's plans to decarbonize their electricity system, taking into consideration customer affordability and reliability. We touch on technologies, the importance of regional interconnections, such as the maritime link in the Atlantic Loop, and the need for clear policy direction. Here is my conversation with Peter, recorded in early October 2021. Peter, welcome uh, welcome back to the podcast. This is your second trip here. Thanks, Francis. Very, very much appreciated. You know, when uh, we last spoke, uh, you were based in Ontario. Uh, you were with the independent system operator at the time, and, and now uh, you're uh, here with Nova Scotia Power. How has the transition been? Kind of two sides to it. One, uh, physically, because uh, you yeah. moved in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and then second, uh, going from a, a system operator to uh, a, a vertically integrated company. So how, sure. how's the, what's the experience been like? It's been, it's been an adventure is the best way of, okay. uh, of describing it. 
you know, maybe get to your first part first. Um, yeah, moving moving in the middle of a global pandemic certainly had its challenges. Um, and so what it meant was, I think I spent four different um, isolation periods um, as I was sort of going back and forth between Ontario and Nova Scotia. For much of that period, if you if you're entering the province, you had to do two week isolation. Right. And so with the back and forth I needed to do to complete the move, ended up doing four different uh, isolation periods. So got a lot of time with myself um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, made it work. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it's interesting joining a company when pretty much everybody in the company, you're new, they all know each other and you're meeting people through a screen was different. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting, you know, the tools work. And if you use them properly, I did a lot of videos, even beyond just these kind, kinds of, you know, meetings, I'd record a lot of videos sort of introducing myself, um, you know, trying to make sure there's a presence for me. So different tools. Mm-hmm. Um, we have got people in the office now. Right. And we've sort of been gradually doing that over the summer. So it's a, it's a delight to actually meet people who I've interacted with over video screen. Um, but, uh, you know, made it work. And I think the second part, you know, really proud to join Nova Scotia Power. Loved my time at the ISO. Um, really, really interesting place to work. Um, sets of challenges, all that kind of stuff. But what I felt I wanted to do the next step of my career is get a little closer to the operations side right. of the business. As you know, I was on that side with Hydro One yep. um, and wanted to get back uh, into that. I also wanted to join the Amera family because you know we're mm-hmm. one of the few investor-owned uh, utilities in, in Canada, and I wanted to have that experience. And then the big part for me was, and I know we'll get into it the, the rest of our conversation, what it's the challenge of decarbonization um, right. and yeah. you got a utility here that continues to burn coal. How do we get ourselves away mm-hmm. from coal in an accelerated time frame, but also do that affordably? And the challenge of that was really appealing to me. Before we get into, into those details, uh, Peter, I thought uh, I'd ask you a question that I've asked a number of other people who've come on the podcast, uh, and we didn't get a chance to talk about the first time uh, that you were, uh, you were with us, and that's about your journey. You mentioned Hydro One and, and the ISO, but what, what was your journey? Um, you know, when, and I, I kind of joke, uh, you know, when, when you were a young lad uh, in the playground, uh, did, you, you know, did you dream of one day running a vertically integrated uh, no. utility company in, in Atlantic Canada? No, uh, never so in my wildest that? dream. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I've had a I've had a probably a non-traditional career path is probably the best way of saying it. Um and um I've also been blessed um to have been, you know, offered a lot of opportunity for a different growth uh mm-hmm. in my career. I've been very fortunate with that. But you know, back to when I was a kid, did I think this was my path? No. Um I grew up on a farm. So I was probably much more interested in, in farming and, uh, you know, the outdoors and all that kind of stuff back then. But, you know, I, I, my early part of my career, I was fortunate enough to uh, end up in Ottawa um, working for a backbench MP in 1993 um, and then quickly moved over to a minister's office um, and, you know, only there for a short period of time. But those, those jobs are interesting as you look back on them because, the amount of scope you get given at a young age to have sort of influence on on policy 
initiatives is is amazing and you sort of get to see from the inside too how policy making works how government works and i've been able to leverage i think that short period of time in ottawa into you know every aspect of my career career since so <laughs> um from there ended up i worked for the minister of transport ended up going working for the greater toronto airports authority as we were building the big new terminal right um and that was a direct uh, sort of comparison to the job I'd had. And then I, I did the left turn where I was recruited to go work for Hydro One. Right. Spent 10 years at Hydro One and I had, you know, opportunity to sort of run the gamut, more of a corporate affairs role. And then it ended up being chief operating officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then from there went to, you know, we formed Electra out of a number of utilities in Ontario. Ontario and then the ISO and, and now to a different province. Um, but, you know, one of those themes like I mentioned that keep coming back to is that, that early sort of formative time in Ottawa, um, the nature of regulated utilities is there's a lot of interaction with mm-hmm. policymakers mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the machinery of government. And that time um, I spent there, I think, has has paid many, many dividends over the years as I've I've sort of wended my way down this sort of, you know, meandering path of my career. <laughs> so so as a as a former uh, Hill staffer, I bet you were watching the election closely uh, the last couple of weeks. Sure. Always Ooh. do. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things I, th- I thought we'd uh, we drill down on just to see if, uh, you know, what, what your take is, is one of the things in the platform of the, of the now reelected liberals is a net zero grid by 2035. They're, they've matched the commitment that uh, the Biden administration um, has, has made. Now, um, that's an aspiration. Sure. <laughs> it, it's not, you know, we, we haven't seen the actual specific policies in terms of, of how we're going to get to that. But any initial thoughts about this, this big uh-huh. aspirational target, particularly from sure. the perspective of, of, uh, of Nova Scotia? Because the, the view there, I'm sure, I mean, in every region, this is going to be approached very differently. And sort of what's your, what's your initial take on it from, from the seat that you're sitting in now? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly from an aspirational perspective, um, we'd be aligned with that, but all of our planning to date has been net zero 2050. Parent company Amera has got a commitment to net zero 2050. Our plans to decarbonize have all been based on 2050. So to your direct question, what was my reaction? Reaction was I worried about affordability first of an accelerated path to 2035. A, how do we do that? But B, probably more importantly, how do you make that an affordable transition for our customers? That's right. what I worry about. So I think aspirationally, it's the right thing to do. Um, and we've been focused, you know, the challenge for us in Nova Scotia, unlike many other jurisdictions, we still burn coal. Mm-hmm. We know our customers want us to get away from coal and we have a commitment to get away from coal. And we have a plan that'll see us um, shut down our eight remaining coal units um, by 2030. <laughs> and that'll get us 80% plus right. um, of our power from renewable sources, which is great. But it's that last, as we all know, it's that last chunk to get to the zero, yeah. which is can be the really, really expensive piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why my, my mind went to, you know, the challenge for all of us, I think, is going to be how do we make that an affordable transition? Hmm. So what is that? What is that? Um, that last? 20%, actually, before we talk about the last 20%, um, the, the first chunk from now to 2030, what, what's that going to look like for Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia Power? What's sure. the transition away from coal? Because uh, that's eight, eight years. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah. I know it's feeling the urgency there. Well, we've done, you know, even though we've got coal, we've actually really invested on the other end of the spectrum too. So we get 30% of our power now comes from renewable sources. And right. So, you know, that's that from looking at other jurisdictions, we're doing pretty well. So that's current day. Um, we've got the maritime link that connects us to Newfoundland. And with Muskrat Falls, you know, now commissioning and powering up all their units, once that power is consistently delivered across the link, that'll get us to 60%. Okay. So we're, we're targeting that for early 2022. We'll be at 60% renewables. Mm-hmm. Um, to get to the next 20%, it's a combination of, of things. It's going to be expansion of more renewables in the province right. matched with grid scale batteries to integrate that, those renewables onto our grid. Okay. But we've, you know, you've heard talk about the Atlantic loop. I know, um, which is another transmission connection that would see us, you know, connecting through to, to Brunswick and then ultimately to Quebec mm-hmm. to tap into their, you know, vast renewable resources there. And so the combination of maritime link sort of is a high level mm-hmm. of maritime link, the Atlantic loop, more renewables plus grid scale batteries, some demand side management, all of that sort of portfolio of solutions gets us to the 80% plus renewables right. by, 20, by 2030 and eliminates those eight coal fired units by that date. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, and then, and then the, the beyond <laughs> that extra, that, 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 that other 20% in the 2050 time frame. Um, you know, when I've been talking to some of the, some of the other, some of the other CEOs, you know, they've been talking about, well, there's, most of what we're going to get done is with the technology that we have today. And some of the stuff when you get out to 2050 is stuff that isn't maybe isn't not there at, yet. Yeah. yeah. Is, is that 20% going to be a combination of things that, that may not yet be with us or may so. not yet be? I think so. One of the things we, we struggle with, and I know pretty much anybody who runs a utility struggles with um, is, you know, I think there's an aspiration certainly to move away from all carbon emitting resources, including natural gas. Mm-hmm. But we all struggle to find a technology that is going to replace the characteristics of natural gas fired generators. Right. Um, and, you know, simple cycle um, generators that provide us the fast acting resource we need to maintain reliability. <laughs> and so, you know, what we're going to do. So part of our plan too, is we'll need to convert a couple of our coal units to, to natural gas right. used very, very infrequently, yep. but there for reliability purposes. I'll give you an example. This last January, we had a real cold stretch here for four days <laughs> and we got virtually no wind during those whole four days. Gotcha. So grid scale batteries will help you a short duration, but when you've got four days of no wind and you're yep. relying on it, you need to have that source. And right now that source for us would be natural gas. <laughs> As we think about those conversions, you know, we're thinking about how do you build it in such a way that you could affordably change out the fuel source so that if it's going to be hydrogen, when hydrogen becomes an affordable option, can you convert to hydrogen? And those are the kinds of technologies we're going to all have to keep our eyes on to to help close that gap to get to Mm -hmm. net zero. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And and it'd be interesting to to chat about some of those technologies, but why don't we start with the the, uh, grid scale batteries, because that's in your 2030 um, time horizon. And so um, I think you're the first person that I'm speaking to that is uh, uh, moving in a significant way into into grid scale batteries. So what is what is that looking like, and what's the 
Yeah. What's the the characteristics of of the the kind of technology that you're putting into place? Yeah, it's it, you know it's fairly it's fairly simple tech from a technology perspective. It's fairly straightforward. Right. Um, you know, they're they're grid scale batteries are playing a more prominent role but when you think about their their purpose is you know store some energy for the times you're going to need it so mm. you know we're really looking at four hour duration um probably up to about 200 megawatts of of grid scale batteries embedded onto our system mm-hmm. um and really what that does a couple things one is it allows us to really more efficiently integrate these extra renewables. So I said right. we're at 30% today, we're going to increase that. So we'll probably add in the in the realm of 500 megawatts of new wind mm-hmm. to the system. And so that's going to allow us to, to integrate um, that wind onto the system. It also has grid reliability benefits that some of our larger industrial customers will benefit from. Mm-hmm. And so as we place um, that 200 megawatts, it won't be one centralized unit. We're going to distribute it a little bit on the grid. And while you're getting, you know, industrial functions in in many of these industrial plants, their machinery is so sensitive to to interruptions that actually having, you know, strategically placing those batteries closer to those you know, those sensitive loads gives mm-hmm. us a reliability benefit as well. So really he plays two purposes for us. Um, you know, we're continuing to think through the, the regulatory path mm-hmm. uh, with our regulator to, to support all of that and what that looks like. Um, but it is a big part of our plan. It's an, an integral part of our plan to, to shutting down coal by, by 2030. What's the, what's the regulatory uh, challenge with respect to grid scale batteries is it just probably just that it's new um and you know being able to demonstrate the the value to the customer um versus you know more tried and true um types of technologies um i think that's that's probably the challenge it's more the newness um i don't Mm -hmm. think it's i don't think it's it doesn't necessarily need to be a huge challenge but as you (laughs) said we're we're one of the few looking at it so yeah there's not a lot of precedent in the regulatory arena for us to look at to say this is how you do it so we're really mm-hmm. doing doing that thinking but you know I certainly think we can be successful in in doing it yeah so the that 2035 target um that the uh the federal liberals have with respect to our grid uh is that uh likely to have an impact on nova scotia powers plans to 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 uh to aim for net zero because your your net zero target was 2050 is that that's still where you're, where you're heading. It, it, I think, you know, who knows? You said off the top, we don't have the details on that. It's aspirational. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it probably will. But again, back to the, the biggest concern I've got is, you know, the affordability of doing that and relying on technologies that might not be be proven yet to close right. that gap down to right. zero. Yeah. So, how, and you know, you, you look at, at many jurisdictions these days um, struggling with, you know, moving to a more renewable portfolio. And then what does that mean to reliability um, for their systems? We got to avoid those, those, those problems too. We got to make sure it's an affordable, but a reliable transition and a durable reliable transition as well so that's mm-hmm. when you when you start compressing timelines I, I do worry about that too that are we are we going to create long-term durable solutions that that are affordable yeah yeah and then you know the other the other side of that 2050 conversation is is um it isn't just about 
decarbonizing the grid. It's going to be the rest of the economy. And we've yeah. seen projections that the demand for electricity is going to, uh, you know, double or triple. Triple. Yeah. Yeah. When we get out to 2050. So, so if you, if you cast your mind out to 2050, um, that's, that's a pretty significant shift for energy use. Uh, yeah. Well, anywhere in this country, but you know, Nova Scotia, certainly. Yeah, it is. Um, and we're, you know, our longer term strategy is now, how do we make sure we're prepared for that? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of, that's the other point around the grid. You know, if you look across the country and yes, we have coal, we're going to remove that for our system, but you know, the electricity system generally has done a lot to decarbonize already. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other elements of, of the economy, I think, where there's probably that proverbial lower hanging fruit to focus on now. Yep. Great example here in, in Nova Scotia is that still about 30% of our home heating in the province is done by oil. Um, so there's a great opportunity to uh, move to heat pumps. Um, and we're, we're aggressively trying to you know, work with our customers, um, help them to make that transition, make it an affordable one. Um, but there are those, those other parts of the economy that I think yeah, need, to, need to play their role as well. And then how, how do we as utilities um, help that? The beautiful thing about electrification is that if we green our grid um, <laughs> and then allow the rest of the, you know, that we power the rest of the economy, um, that's, the, that's the best path to to decarbonization um, for the whole economy. If they can plug into a sustainable green grid, um, that's, the, that's, that's the best path. Right, right. Um, you, you mentioned the, the maritime link uh, and the Atlantic loop. So it yeah. sounds like the, the, the maritime link is going to be key for your, your 2030 um, yes. uh, plans. Um, and Atlantic loop will be 2030 and also, and also beyond. Is that kind of how they're going to fit in in your in your plans? Well, yeah. Well, the loop, the loops, um, the link. Sorry, the maritime link. That's uh, the connection to Newfoundland. Um, it's there. It's been it's been sitting under the seabed or at the seabed for the last three and a half years, waiting for utilization. Yeah. So now that muskrat is is coming online, we'll start to to receive that energy, and that that um, you know it's a it's an agreement we've got for the next thirty five years. It's going to provide us really low cost green green energy. So that's great. That's a big piece of it. Um, but then to do the rest of it, uh, a big part of that will be dependent on, um, you know, our current planning is if we can do this, this Atlantic loop through mm-hmm. New Brunswick into Quebec, um, that's the next big step in our journey. The, the simplest way to think about it. So um, with the eight units we've got mm-hmm. right now that burn coal, when we get the energy over the maritime link, that's going to allow us to shut down around one. So then we're left with seven. The, the Atlantic Loop will sort of do half of that seven. Okay. And then more renewable generation based in Nova Scotia will allow us to do the other half mm-hmm. of that seven. That's how we eliminate those eight coal units. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you, you mentioned in terms of renewables, you, you mentioned wind. Um, is is um, tidal and marine renewables going to be part of the future? Where or where are they? We've, are they? We've tried. And we did a, a integrated resource plan last year that looked at all of these options yeah. um, and uh, you know balanced affordability, feasibility with with you know decarbonization. And the challenge with with tidal, we were an early investor. Yeah, in tidal. 
in yeah. Annapolis Royal, Nova Scotia. I had the privilege of going down there a couple months ago and actually seeing seeing the plant, but um, didn't really pay the dividends that we'd hoped it would pay in terms mm. of uh, an inexpensive source of power. So unfortunately, we're actually in front of the regulator right now um, looking to decommission that plant um, right. because it just doesn't compare um with the affordable options we've we've got otherwise maybe that will change in the future and we'll see some breakthroughs there but really for us the the best source of renewables we've got hydro facilities and we're investing in and in maintaining our hydro facilities but we're not like uh, quebec we're not like a manitoba that we're blessed mm. with huge resources but we're using all we can there and then the next uh the other one is wind um right. we've got good wind profiles in this province uh, onshore, we've still got an opportunity to develop um, onshore wind very affordably. Um, offshore doesn't compete yet with the price of onshore. Maybe mm -hmm. at some point in the not too distant future it will. Um, but wind really is our best resource for, for those renewables. Yeah. Hydrogen, you'd mentioned hydrogen. That may be something out in the 2030 to 2050 timeframe. Yeah, we keep an eye on it. And I know there are a bunch of companies... Um, sort of looking at investing more in it around here and we talked to them but it's not an area where we're spending a lot we're not spending any money on it um we do keep an eye on it um um obviously you know look for its development but it's not it's not part of our plan at the moment yeah yeah, when I was talking to uh, uh, Ken uh, Hartwick at OPG yeah. uh, in their 2040 plan, hydrogen uh, uh, is is part of the their long term plan. Um, sure, but so is uh, so is carbon capture and um, yeah. and storage. Uh, is carbon capture in your in your 2050 vision? Um, no, it's not. Um, and we didn't, if I'm, I'm trying to remember if I think we did take a look at that in our integrated resource plan. Um, you know, we do have, we've got some many, many coal mines it would be interesting to see if they could be used to actually, you know, capture, um, oh, yeah, yeah. capture that yeah. stuff. But I think again, from a, from a cost effectiveness point of view, it really didn't stack up when we looked at it in terms of the, the other tools we've got available. So it's one of those other ones that maybe out in the, in the more distant future, it would have some, some merit, but frankly, Francis, we've been so focused on, you know, the path, as you said, eight years to shut down yeah. um eight coal units um and how do we do that affordably that's that's what we've been focused on yeah 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 eight, eight years um in in this business is is tomorrow um you know well, it's really isn't... it's really assets that have been 50 years plus for yeah. us to put in yeah. in the system we're gonna have to replace them in eight um yeah. so it's a monumental challenge yeah is um is or are small modular reactors uh, something that is being considered uh, for the for the future? Yeah, it's a, I get asked that a lot. Um, SMRs get a lot of attention these days. The interesting fact that I learned uh, about Nova Scotia is that um, uh, nuclear power is is currently illegal in the province. Um, uh -huh. It's a long history, um, so we can't um, we can't actually install it here. Not to say that laws laws couldn't be changed but um it's not currently part of our our plan right. it's one of those technologies though we we do keep a pretty close eye on it um certainly you know i've had several discussions with with kent 
Hartwick, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Ken Hartwick at OPG, and yeah. his team. You know, I was at the ISO. We had a lot of conversations about that, and I, I believe OPG is probably going to be the first to really test out that technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but our neighbors, who we're working really, really closely with, you know, Keith Cronkite and our friends at, uh, at New Brunswick Power, it's something they're studying um, yeah. to a great degree. And so it's part of the conversation uh, I have with Keith and his team, um, and we keep an eye on it. But right now, it's 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 not not part of our plan. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about innovation? Because this is a this sure. is a topic that that we we we've talked about before in your in your previous life. But um, Nova Scotia Power um, uh, has been you know one of the companies that, that has been uh, pushing the envelope on on electricity yeah. sector innovation. Um, you know, we, we talked a, a little bit about uh, your 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 plans for uh, grid scale storage. Um, there are a couple of product projects that that have come to mind for me that maybe uh, get a sense of of uh, sort of your take on them. Uh, the intelligent feeder project would be one. Uh, the collaborative smart grid innovation project. Uh, I don't know if you you know if you got anything to say about either of those projects, but then yeah, you know, kind of get your take on innovation generally and and how that's moving forward because. I think this is part and parcel of it, as you say. This is a massive challenge that the uh, the the company is faced is facing, and the only way you're going to be able to sort of square that circle is through innovation. Yeah, it is. So our those those two projects you mentioned, um, you know, I like to think about those as innovation that's focused on um, the net zero aspirations. So how do we integrate more renewables onto the system? Right, but it's also the other side of it is how do we manage um, customers' expectations for reliability or resiliency? Right, um, and so if you took the um, first one you mentioned, the intelligent feeder project, that's mm-hmm. really you know putting grid scale battery in a substation, and then essentially test the power walls uh, in the garage. Um, that power parts of the house Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, in areas where we've had some chronic reliability issues due to um, you know the length of the feeder Mm -hmm. um, we've got some pretty extreme weather in Nova Scotia as well yes Um, and so invested in that we're doing a pilot with a number of our customers Um, so you know what we're able to do is store some of that wind energy at the substation in the and and have it available and if there's a power outage and do the same thing uh, on a smaller scale in the community where mm. we've actually created a microgrid mm-hmm. of those tesla power walls um and you know connection from those uh, houses to each other and so really you know it's it's trying to innovation dollars that are really focused at you know those immediate challenges we've got around decarbonization mm-hmm. and making sure we maintain and enhance reliability for our customers. So that's really the lens at which we look at innovation inside Nova Scotia Power. Um, same thing is with the other project you mentioned, the collaborative smart grid um, project mm-hmm. we've got with New Brunswick. Similar, um, you know, we're building some community solar gardens there, right. which allows you know customers who can't necessarily put the solar panels on their own roof access to renewable power in the community um, and then distributed batteries uh, again like the other project but also you know integrating um, smart uh, EV chargers as well because that's the other big part you know we talked about electrification a little earlier you know there's no doubt that transportation is quickly um, moving to to electricity mm-hmm. and so how do we make sure we've got a the charging capability for our customers when they want it 
but how do we make sure that 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 blends seamlessly in with the needs of the grid as well um that we're not duplicating investments but that we're actually you know making targeted reliability investments resiliency investments but also giving the customer the access to the power they need and so you know it all all fits into that lens of affordability integrate renewables um, and maintain reliability that's how we focus our innovation yeah, I think it's interesting that, uh, that well, you know, throughout the conversation, um, you've been talking about uh, affordability and affordability yeah. first. This, I'm increasingly hearing that from people right across the country, that the, the concern with respect to customer affordability seems to seems to be coming very much to the forefront, isn't it? Oh, very much. Um, and it is it is the conversation where we're having with customers. Mm. They want us, when we engage with customers, they want us to get off coal. They want us to decarbonize the system. They want to have access to, you know, EVs, all that <laughs> stuff. Um, but right below that surface is concern about their bill. Yeah. Um, and so we have to make sure that as we make these investments in what is an incredibly complex transformation of our system, mm -hmm. that affordability needs to be front and center in everything we do. It, it occurs to me that also, um, you know, when, when you were in Ontario at the IESO, you had some almost quasi-regulatory authorities yes. uh, yes. that, uh, that of course, certainly don't exist now that you're in Nova Scotia. It isn't the same kind of take, but, but you know, you've been, you've been a, a keen observer, I think, of the regulatory environment. Uh, how do we get to uh, yeah. a, a regulatory environment that, that will more closely match what the future requirements are going to be? Because, you know, we keep talking about it's a, about, a, a, you know, the regulatory regime was probably absolutely perfect and right for the 1970s, 1980s, but maybe yeah. not for, yeah. and, and, you know, particularly when we're talking about how do you, you know, how do you ensure innovation in the future? That, that's sometimes hard to uh, have in yeah. the same conversation about, um, you know, lowest cost of service. Yeah, you're right, and and it's a it is a real challenge for all of us, and for regulators as well. I think, you know, if you step back and look at it big picture, I think you know, there's a there's a huge link, obviously, between policy and regulation, yeah. and so I think you know to get it right, I think working with policymakers to make sure that the policies are in place to oversee the transformation and that's interesting that's that those are discussions i think probably the reason i'm mentioning that is that we've got a new provincial government here in, in nova scotia so you know engaging a lot with that that government around sort of the policy agenda and mm -hmm. telling our story around what it's going to take to to decarbonize the grid so i think um you know having having clear policy in place um, and that policy needs to be pretty big picture and look pretty far out with the future. And then I think if with that clear policy in place, I think the, the regulators are going to have to follow suit with mm -hmm. that. Um, so I think that's a big piece of it. And then I think, you know, the way we approach it with the regulator too, we've got a really, really strong regulator here in, mm -hmm. in Nova Scotia. Yep. Um, and the way we approach that with them too, is that, you know, spending a lot of time talking about our challenges, what our customers are, are telling us, um, and, and the plan we've got for transformation. 
and you know it's it's more i hate to say education because i don't want it to sound like it's a it's a one-way discussion mm -hmm. but really making sure the regulator understands where we're going yeah. so they can start thinking about their role differently but it's it's a three-way conversation between policymakers <laughs> the regulator and the utility that i think has got to get it right and that's not easy to do at all yeah and, and you know, one one of the the questions I keep getting asked is, is is there anywhere we can point to where they are doing a, a better job at that? And I, I haven't I, found it. No, exactly. Well, yeah, and that's yeah, that's usually usually the response in these conversations is if if somebody had figured out how to build a better mousetrap, we'd we'd all be using that better mousetrap. Yeah, but I think you know the policy's got to be clear, and it's got to be based on some pretty sound principles. We've touched on a lot of them, <clears throat> you know, affordability and reliability. Um, it, it've got to be front and center um, as we do that. Um, but you know, increasingly, I guess the thing that's changed for all of us is the pace that we need to go at ah, is is okay. is the biggest is the biggest challenge, and I think that's that's why when you said you know regulations that worked well in the 1970s well the pace of change was so much slower you had time yeah. to do it yeah. so that's what we're all struggling with now is that uh, our timelines have gotten a lot shorter yeah peter one of the things that I, i've been asking people who come on to the podcast is about a book that they are either reading or have read recently that they would recommend to uh, to the listener so for you what book would that be it's, it's going to be completely out of left field. That's fine. Um, it's got nothing to do with what we just talked about. But it's interesting. It's a book that I picked up years ago and never finished because it's a really thick book. And it's called The Looming Tower. I think the author's name is Lawrence Wright, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it, the reason I picked it up again is because we had the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11. That made me think about it again. Right. Um, and really, it's it's the origin. It's a really interesting sort of historical perspective on the origins of Al-Qaeda and then what sort of led to the oh. attacks on 9-11. There's actually a mini, I think there's a mini series done about it too a number of years ago. Um, but it's a really fascinating read. Um, as I say, it's a, it's a big, thick book, um, but a fascinating uh -huh. read. So I picked it up again. That's what's on my nightstand. Wow. Okay. Well, the looming tower. We'll, we'll yeah. add it to we'll add it to the flux capacitor uh, reading list. Right on, Peter. Thank you very much for for taking the time to to jump on the podcast for a repeat. Really appreciate you uh, uh, coming in for a chat. Well, thanks so much, Francis. And uh, the first time we did this, I was actually in Ottawa, and we got to sit in the same room uh, and see each other, which was really nice. Uh, and we haven't done a lot of that lately, so I hope the next time we are able to see each other in person again. So thanks very much. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future podcasts in the Net Zero 2050 series, which will continue given the evolving targets for the economy as a whole and for the electricity sector. Future podcasts will include industry, government, and stakeholder guests discussing the implications of and the pathways to the Net Zero future. And as always, let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.